Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. incredible how quickly things become normal. Uh, Fires, floods, storms every summer, cataclysmic, biblical-level calamity and chaos. That's just summer now. We saw it coming. There was coverage in the press for many years of climate change on the way, kind of framed as a debate. Is it coming, really? It's sort of, it's when's it coming? Maybe it's not coming. Who's causing it? That was the way that we talked about it for many years. We have moved on from that. Now it's normal. Now we've accepted it. In fact, it's normal in a way that the media is actually a bit more comfortable with than this endless debate about scientific things. No, it's covering a storm. We know how to cover storms. That's perfect eyewitness news stuff. And there are many storms to cover. And so that's what we do. We tell you what has happened, which rivers have overflown, which highways are out, how big were the hailstones. We simply document the changes that are happening We don't necessarily examine the implications of permanent climate chaos. You know, wildfire, it burns homes. It it causes communities of people to flee, yes. But what else does it do? And what does it mean that impacts like that are not felt equally across this country? This week, we're going to re-air an episode of Canada Land that we originally brought to you in October. Our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk, took a deep dive into the intersectional nature of the wildlife threat for First Nations. Wait for it. We're starting this story in Little Grand Rapids First Nation, an Anishinaabe community with an on-reserve population of about 1,400 people. It's located in east-central Manitoba, and as the crow flies, it's only about 260 kilometers northeast of Winnipeg. But because of how isolated it is, it might as well be 1,000 kilometers away. You can only get here by plane or ice road in the winter. But right now, it's virtually deserted, and it has been for months. Close your eyes and tell me what you can hear. I can hear the water, uh, which is life, and the wind, the trees, the leaves. There's the lake, the wind, and the trees. One other thing I know you can hear. And of course the generator. The generator. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't want to say that. (laughs) It's like, it's the sound of the community right now. Yeah, it's... uh, it's usually, during the day, you can hear people, you know, talking or, uh, like, even just across the bay here, you can hear kids playing, and uh, and right now there's nothing. It's a ghost town. It's it's quiet. It's too quiet. It's nice and peaceful, but it's, it's quiet. It's, I think it's, you know, we need to get people home. That's what's missing here. Those are the voices of Blair Owen, a band counselor in Little Grand Rapids, and his father, Oliver Owen, who owns a small plane outfit that services remote First Nations. Little Grand, along with the neighboring flying community Pungasi First Nation, were evacuated in mid-July when wildfires ripped across the province in one of the most severe wildfire seasons ever seen in Manitoba. 
This time, no homes were burned. The damage was isolated to electricity infrastructure. But in the recent past, this community wasn't so lucky. In 2018, again, everyone was evacuated and four homes went up in flames. The dangers of fire and smoke have long passed now when I visit in September. But even though the community wasn't directly touched by fire, damage to the long-distance power transmission line has kept almost 2,000 people from returning home for more than two months. They're stuck waiting in cramped hotel rooms all across downtown Winnipeg in the meantime. So these generators... Since the danger of the fire subsided, a handful of people have returned, and they either live in the dark or they run a backup generator around the clock. The noise really dampens the serenity of this place, which might as well be a damn postcard. It's so beautiful with the rocks, the Canadian shield, and the warm fall sun bouncing off the lake. But this visit is far from a happy one. I was brought here out of desperation. Oliver and Blair are trying to get media attention to put pressure on Manitoba Hydro to expedite the repair work to the transmission line. They worry the longer their people are stranded in hotels all across Winnipeg, the deeper the damage will run. Here's Oliver Owen. We've already lost, uh, between the two communities, I think we lost four people already. What do, you, from, uh, what do you mean when you say that, when you say you've lost four people? Uh, because of their drinking, they, it's been two months, so... They see in Little Grand, uh, it's a dry reserve. You okay. know, you're not allowed to drink. Yeah. You're not allowed. But but there's some people that are that don't have control when they came here. So there's liquor stores everywhere. You know. Yeah. So they're they are drinking to death. Yeah. So we lost already four people. And they died. Died this, this summer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's since. Uh, uh, well, everybody got evacuated. It was July the 15th. Yeah. Yeah. So Oliver's idea was that we'd fly down the power line and see the damage firsthand. Maybe glean some answers as to what the holdup was. But first, he wanted to show me around town. Did you want to go for a ride in the community? Yeah, sure. Okay. Paul, come. You want to come or? Yeah. I want to the bears have been breaking into houses out here and doing a lot of damage. So we'll go see if we can get into that house. I asked the owner yesterday, she said, go ahead. Stopping at the far end of the community, the burned remnants of a house still remain from the last time the community was evacuated just three years ago. A ways down the road, a local RCMP detachment is letting off plumes of black, sooty smoke. That's the jail. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the RCMP must still be here. Oh, or yeah, no. they're here, yeah. Okay. Let's go see their diesel generator. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, that stinks. Oh, that's what that is, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's oh, oh. Find fuel injector for a 1990 diesel. Who should we run into on the road but RCMP officer Sergeant Sean Farrell. It's been like this for about two months. Because they're emergency generators, they're not meant to run 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, luckily enough, my folks all have, uh, we have generators to run uh, some of the basics in the houses, freezers, fridges, that kind of thing, and a few a few extras. Plus, we've got two big, large emergency generators that run our water system and our uh, sewage system, as well as our office. Okay. So, But those run on diesel, and we don't. We have to import a, an awful lot of diesel fuel uh, yeah. for that. How are because, you getting that in? Uh, we're, it's coming in by plane, and we're bringing it over by helicopter. We brought some over by boat. It's uh, it's a chore to do 
for yeah. sure. But uh, our generators are probably running about, uh, probably consuming a barrel a day each. And then our, our smaller generators are probably consuming upwards of 120 liters of gasoline a day. Yeah. So all of that, uh, all of that adds, adds up after time for sure. As the forest fires kind of get more intense uh, as climate's changing, it's going to become a more regular problem? Is it like, I don't know, is it Could something? Well be, but there's no easy answer to that either, right? If we're talking climate change, if we have another J June, July as hot and dry as we had this year, then certainly there's going to be the potential for another, another forest fire. That's an awful lot of virgin uh, forest that is fuel for forest fires. So although a, a fair amount of it was burned this summer, there's still an enormous amount of forest to go, right? Yeah. So next year, will, will a portion of that line burn? Two years from now, will a portion of that line burn? Sure, it's possible, but how do you prevent that? Uh, stop global warming? I don't know, like what's an easy answer to that? I mean, like what, a road would make this a lot better, right? If this was a road access community, even yeah. evacuations wouldn't be so dire? Absolutely. But, uh, and I think there's been talk over the years about putting a road in, whether that's going to happen or not, that's up to infrastructure, I guess. But, yeah. but uh, certainly an all-season road, uh, I know that's made a big difference for Blood Vein and uh, Barrens River. In fact, in an interview with a spokesperson for Manitoba Hydro, an all-season road was the only thing the utility company claimed would help speed up repairs. That delays weren't for a lack of resources, but rather terrible terrain, weather, and principally, the inaccessibility. In 2015, all-weather roads were promised to Little Grand Rapids, Pungassie, and a number of other communities on the east side of Lake Winnipeg. The projects were supported by the provincial NDP government at the time and the federal government. But when the PC government came to power a year later in Manitoba, the road projects were kiboshed. Local NDP MP Nikki Ashton has long advocated for that move to be reversed. Almost our entire province is uh, is further north in Pungassie and, uh, and does have road access. And so essentially what you see from Pungassie and all, I would say, east side First Nations that continue to be isolated is really the impacts of, of uh, systemic racism and the failure of our governments, and particularly the federal government that has uh, that fiduciary obligation to First Nations, to recognize that, that, that uh, you know, in this day and age, nobody should be isolated um, uh, like this. Uh, these are two communities uh, for, for whom, uh, um, you know, life, daily life is very difficult, increasingly difficult, and, uh, uh, and, and the climate emergency is, uh, uh, has, has made life not only more difficult, but frankly, even impossible. Well, and you, you paint quite a picture about the difficulties of continuing to live in these communities. It, I was hoping to talk to you about how colonization has progressed for these communities because the Indian Act forced these communities into very selected areas, very small parts of their traditional land, and then over time, we've just made it almost impossible to stay there. So where, what is the responsibility in your eyes to, to improve access? Where does it go from here? And what is the responsibility of the federal government and, and provincial governments, quite frankly? First of all, it's, it's really important to, to acknowledge that uh, these two communities, um, in spite of of colonization and uh, um, 
the, all of the challenges that they face are incredibly resilient. And, and, and so I would say the number one thing we need from Canada is, and the federal government is to listen and act on the priorities of these communities. And uh, a major priority is uh, to put an end to this isolation. And yet when you hear from federal government officials, it doesn't even get on the list. They, they'll talk about Band-Aid solutions in terms of medevacs or in terms of, of uh, food subsidies, you know, I've, both of which are completely inadequate responses. But what I would also say is the climate emergency further reinforces how critical it is to address this isolation. I don't know how many people listening to this story have been contacted by somebody in a community that doesn't have a road that feels trapped because of a forest fire that's encroaching on their community. I've had those phone calls and they are terrifying. And I'm not even in that community when I get that call, right? And I've received those calls from Little Grand, from Pongasi, and it is terrifying. Powering up the plane and flying over the hydro line, the damage is evident in the form of charred power poles. Surveying the damage, it's also easy to see why fixing the line is so tough. Poles are planted in rock, then swamp, then rock again, and the line even spans several substantial waterways. Beneath the plane, there's helicopters buzzing around, undertaking repairs. But for Little Grand and Pungassi, every day away from home brings new challenges, and the waiting is intolerable. Here's Councillor Blair Owen again. This evacuation was only supposed to have been because of the smoke, because of how bad the forest fires were this season. And then when the forest fires went out, you know, there was no power in the community, so then our evacuation was extended. And then, like, right as of, like, right now, like, you know, people, you know, people want to get back home. We're trying to say, like, you know, yes, we understand Hydro's going as fast as they can, but, you know, I think, you know, the two-month time frame for the Hydro to be back on is unacceptable, considering if this had happened, let's say, you know, in a non-Indigenous community, I think... Like, my opinion is the power would probably would have been back on already, you know, remote or not, isolated or not. That's, you know, that's how I, I feel. Like, I feel like we, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, everyone's in hotels in the city. Yeah, okay, fine, that's great. But living in a hotel for two months away from your home. Kids have had their school years completely upended. Families have been separated from one another at different hotels, left with no means of transportation aside from their own feet. But for older folks and kids, that's not really an option based on the distances. And to make evacuees feel really welcome, security guards were hired to watch them at their hotels. That's, you know, you're, we're going to have a, we're going to have even bigger issues when people come home, you know, just, you know, probably, you know, mental well-being, you know, like I mentioned, the addictions, like it's just, you, you can say it all you want, like, yeah, we're looking after everybody, but no, it's people are suffering right now being in these hotels. You know, we're trying to get that message out there too, to, you know, like, you know, we're telling the Red Cross, you know, we're telling Indigenous Services Canada, you know, like we need to get our people home. Like, it's just like, it's like everything's falling on death ears. It's like, you know, you'll get home when you get home. Like, don't, don't bug us about it. And I mean, you're the leadership in this community. How does that make you 
feel. Well, but the, like that, that they're just they like that they're leaving you with nothing you can do. It's frustrating. It's depressing. It's you know feeling helpless. Like you know, I get calls every day, every week. When are we going home? When are we going home? When are we going home? And you know, and you just get you get the, you keep getting the same update. You know, six to eight weeks, four to six weeks, three to five weeks. Good news came three days after the visit to Little Grand. Manitoba Hydro announced that repairs had been expedited and that the power would be back on in mere days. Bruce Owen, a spokesperson for Manitoba Hydro, was adamant that media inquiries about delays did not factor into announcing the new timeline, but rather it was because of good weather and speed. Typically in these types of situations where we're um, doing maintenance on a power line in a, a remote area, we get access in, in the winter when everything's frozen. So you can bring in uh, the vehicles, the track vehicles and the equipment uh, relatively easy. Um, but in this circumstance, with, uh, you know, the summer months, um, it, it was, you know, we, we, it was a challenge. Despite the difficulty of the repairs and the likelihood this challenge will be presented again, Manitoba Hydro is not pursuing any kind of alternative service delivery. In fact, across this country, more and more remote transmission power lines are being built to distant First Nations communities in order to end the use of diesel-generated power, which is great because it means less pollution and fewer health problems. But There's little discussion about how vulnerable this infrastructure will be in a warming climate and the new problems outages could create. I'm Amy Cardinal Christensen. I'm a Métis woman from Treaty 8 territory. I'm from the Cardinal and Lavakan families. And I'm also a research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. And so my research there is all on Indigenous fire stewardship and fire evacuations and of Indigenous communities is mostly what I work with now, given like the the big problems um, in, in that area. She wrote a book about it, following the experiences of seven First Nations after being evacuated. And many similar trends emerged. People really seem to think that like once the flames have passed, that evacuations end. But in lots of the communities that we've worked with, like the loss of power is such a huge um, thing. So in almost every community actually that we worked with, they lost power for a substantial amount of time. And one of the biggest things was when they were returned to their community, you know, you get home and your, your fridge and your freezers haven't had power. And many of these communities are reliant on, you know, wild meat and their traditional foods. So some communities have two, three big freezers that are now, you know, full of moldy, spoiled food that they have to, to deal with. And then anyway, so it, it's and sometimes, you know, they'll give them grocery card vouchers, but, you know, that doesn't replace the loss of, you know, years of traditional meat um, that, that they might have have lost. So yeah, I think that that's one thing people really don't realize is the tie-in with infrastructure and how that can be impacted by um, wildfires. And the connection between infrastructure and the trauma of the evacuation experience go hand in hand because the longer the power is out, the longer people are displaced. You have people going from, like you said, a dry community um, where they speak mostly their traditional language and all of a sudden going to, you know, somewhere where, they're, where they were having a hard time, you know, reading street signs to take public transportation um, and, you know, just kind of felt dumped in, in these communities. 
Enel Keeper is one of those people who felt dumped and forgotten about. He's a 64-year-old member of Little Grand, and I met him outside of his hotel in downtown Winnipeg. The view and noise of constant traffic is a far cry from the scenic, quiet home he's used to. Yeah, so what do you need to talk about? Consider. No, 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 it's all right. It's all right. I'm fine. Okay. I may um, be old, but I can still stand up. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so I'm just talking to people in the community about what this whole experience has been like. And uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me, I mean, what it's been like for two months living in the hotel. Well, it's like, uh, it's really sickening. Like it's been uh, a place where I'm stuck in a room, confined in there. And the only thing you can do is, you know, sit in the room. And I've been uh, separated from my wife during that, during that process because she's a house parent and she looks after different kids. Okay. So I can't stay there with her because oh, okay. uh, that's the role of CFS. But the experience is not good anyway. It's definitely not good. Yeah. This is not the first time, the other time it was the same thing. It's a very bad experience and I think it hurt a lot of people. A lot of people meaning we lost, uh, I think, eight people now since uh, we came here. The last time we lost about six due to alcoholism because yeah, it's, it's something that's so readily available. My whole experience about this it took a lot of time away from me, like, you know, meaning uh, the things I loved doing back home and your family not being around you. I miss them, like, you know, and my grandkids. I spend, I used to spend nights with my grandkid, like my little grandson, he always comes over. It's devastating. It hurts. It hurts that you don't you don't see many people. Kind of brings back to uh, to being in residential school. When I was uh, going to school here, like back in uh, 60, late 60 and 70, I was here for four years at the residential school. So, you know, I was not allowed to go home for Christmas. So we were held back and uh, Kinda, kinda hurts when you think about it, because all the pain that I had to go through. I used to cry in bed, and this is the same feeling I had. I I do have really hard time at night sometimes. There's absolutely nobody to talk to. So all you do is get up, go out, and go up, you know, and uh, it hurts like a. So I was there for four years, suffered my, my, I did my suffering and everything, so kind of. This brings it all, yeah, all back. It brings it all back. It's just like a, a reoccurring thing that happens. And it was the same thing. It does bother me. I am glad to be going home. Tell you that much. Yeah. Okay. Enel is not the only person who is relieved to be going home. Visiting several hotels spread out across central Winnipeg, I heard the same thing over and over and over again. But as Enel pointed out, not everyone will be going home. 
pre-existing medical conditions paired with relived trauma, boredom, isolation, and unfortunately, easier access to alcohol resulted in a number of deaths of community members while they were in the city. Different people gave different estimates for the number of lives lost. Community leaders say it was at least four, possibly more. But the Red Cross, which is responsible for all stages of the evacuation, did not respond to questions on the topic and did not agree to an interview request. Indigenous Services Canada contracted the Red Cross to perform this work, but no one was made available for an interview from the federal department either. Regardless, for the people suffering through the new loss of a loved one, on top of an evacuation and a pandemic, even one person is just too many. I met Aurelia Moore outside of her hotel near the Winnipeg airport. She had just buried her son the week before. You'll also hear her daughter Ashley, who is rather distraught in the background, and a warning that the pain is pretty raw and tough to listen to. It's just so sad. Is the evacuation like it's they the fires that they don't? This is our second time being evacuated out. Yeah. How can you say that word? I just we, everybody just wants to go home, get back to the way things sure. were, but. For I us, it's going to be hard because he was my first word. son, my first baby I lost. So, yeah. like, it didn't really kick in yet, but when we get they home, know. it's going to be hard for a lot of people that lost loved ones here in Winnipeg. He was a good man. What was his name? Derek. Have you been offered any support as far as trying to deal with your loss? I would say yeah, but I just, I just talk to, I just talk to, I pray every night. I talk to Jesus. He helps. Yeah. And plus, my mom and my sister and stay, 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 stay in another hotel. Well, I'm here with all my granddaughters and my daughter. Like it's pretty lonely here. But still have family and some friends, but it's not the same. I'd rather be closer to my mom. I'd stay at the Fairfield. Most wonderful present you can ever get is to go home, but without the love, the love, my, we took my son home already. He's buried beside my dad. You had to go home for, you brought him home for a funeral? Yeah, yeah, just for the day. But my mom and sister, and they stayed there overnight because they just didn't want to, you know, take him home, bury him, and then leave right away. So they stayed the night with him over there with him. But I had to come back because I had my granddaughters here. So I couldn't stay the night. But when I get home, I'm going to be doing some visiting. I imagine that's all been very, it's hard anytime, but doing that while you're evacuated must be impossible. Like I didn't, I don't, like what she said, it didn't really kick in yet. Oh, your mom. Just when we get, probably when we get home. Yeah. I got some too. For the communities, again, that that we worked with. Here's Amy Cardinal Christensen again. I think that there's not a good understanding of, you know, like you said, the fatalities or the loss that's involved with these fire events. So, you know, I went to this one uh, technical workshop after the BC fires and somebody there was saying, you know, well, I think it was in 2017, you know, oh, well, it was a great, you know, great thing because we didn't have any fatalities with the fire events. And um, a First Nations woman actually stood up there and said, you know, 
that's not true at all. Like, you know, sure, in that the 2017 fire events, we didn't lose anyone, you know, being burned by the fires from any of the communities, but we had heart attacks. We had people in hospital because of asthma. We had, like you said, medical conditions that weren't properly managed, that people were lost. Some, there was um, a few, I think, where evacuees, you know, kind of went missing. People couldn't find them after the event. So unfortunately, I think that it is, um, common and I think it's not only for First Nation communities that we don't understand those those impacts, um, but I think that they're felt more in First Nation communities where, where it's oftentimes a small community being evacuated. And like you said, from somewhere, you know, their traditional territories that they've known, um, and then all of a sudden they're taken in, into these other places. I think that the impact is often a lot larger. A fundamental part of the problem is that evacuations are carried out in a way that makes sense to someone in an urban neighborhood, but not what makes sense in these communities. Or so says Jim Waldron. Hi, my name is Jim Waldron, and I'm a medical anthropologist uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. Even when it comes to the order people are removed from communities, where they're taken, how they're split up. Top to bottom, he says, none of it makes sense. Well, you're, you're, you're fundamentally talking about um, the fracturing of the, the social fabric of a community. Uh, you know, communities aren't random collections of people. They are, they are networks. Uh, and in Indigenous communities, the networks often look a little different than they do in Southern urban non-Indigenous uh, settings. Uh, and, and how people are connected, the relations that they have um, are often much deeper and much broader than we would typically find in a suburban uh, non-Indigenous uh, uh, family, right? Uh, and so those networks are absolutely crucial. Uh, without, the, without the networks, um, the sort of the social norms begin to, to change. And uh, um, some might say they even break down a little bit. And so the, the answer is, is to not um, not disrupt those networks in these evacuations, especially longer term evacuations. Uh, you know, so, I mean, that's just one, one key to it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, in some cases, communities have been evacuated for a very long time. Typically, we're looking at a few weeks, right? And so when we're looking at that kind of a time frame, then it's not that difficult to uh, keep the networks together and and to basically have things for people to do. Um, and, and that may be the crucial thing because of course there's no work. I mean, you know, they're just, they're just there. Uh, they've got nothing to do. Uh, whereas at home they would be constantly busy. And so, you know, I mean, that's just a, that's just a, a, a recipe for, for a lot of potential social problems. Right. So how do we do this better? Amy and Jim are both big advocates for setting up Indigenous communities to be able to take in Indigenous evacuees from other communities, something that has been done on an ad hoc basis with success, but not as a structural change to the emergency response system. And so I think the best example that I have seen is to come ups in um, Kamloops. And so when communities were evacuated this summer, past summers, they basically open their arbor grounds there. They don't like, you know, they, they just offer food. You don't have to be a registered evacuee or anything. They try and help people find accommodation. And they kind of have been worrying about money or reimbursement or other things after the fact. And we saw that too in um, Saskatchewan when 
Beardies and Okamasis uh, First Nation opened up what they called the Res Cross, um, where, you know, instead of um, going to these communal kind of centers, they could come and stay on a First Nation, they could camp, they could have traditional foods, community gatherings. I think they're the examples where there's less bureaucracy and where First Nations people are really empowered um, to support other nations. Um, and there's less reliance on kind of, you know, that paternalistic, you know, federal government, you know, provincial government kind of, we will help you and provide your needs. <laughs> These issues have been studied for years. Academics began studying Indigenous evacuation protocols in the 1990s. The Auditor General of Canada published a report in 2013. A House of Commons committee released recommendations in 2018. And from the different sources, recommendations have included training Indigenous firefighters, expediting the speed evacuation claims are paid out, or incorporating Indigenous leaders into emergency management command structures. Recommendations even include using the traditional burning practices of Indigenous communities to lower fire risk in the first place. Indigenous people have been using fire on the land to reduce fire risk for millennia. And, you know, we have our stories and our oral histories from our elders, um, but oftentimes those aren't believed, unfortunately, by um, agencies. And so, you know, colonization first happened when settlers first started coming to Canada. One of their first things that they wanted to do was to protect timber. So to stop fires from happening. And what they didn't see was that those fires are actually protecting, you know, the timber and the, the big trees out there. Um, and what we're seeing now really is, is the loss of of um of basically huge swaths of forests um, to these massive fire events. In I think the first fire suppression campaign that I've been able to find was in 1610 in Newfoundland, where they said like nobody shall set fire to the forest anymore. And basically as settlers moved across Canada, um, that came with them. And of course, with that, as we know now, came increasing fire risk. This has been studied in the 90s. I saw a 2013 report, 2018 report. It just, uh, I guess, have you have you seen any improvements over that time frame? Uh, not really. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know if I can qualify that. I have not seen uh, any meaningful um, Im improvements. I mean, the government says it makes a better effort to keep families together, but I'm not sure there's a lot of evidence of that uh, because we're still hearing the, uh, the same experiences about the fracturing of the families. And it really just comes back to the, the, the evacuation model that they're using and how they, they triage uh, who's at risk and who isn't, and uh, uh, they need to rethink that model. It's a broad, it's a model that that doesn't fit the cultural context of of these communities. In the 2005 fiscal year, Indigenous Services Canada spent 31.5 million dollars on fire suppression, evacuations, and recovery. By 2018, that figure had ballooned by more than 400 percent to a whopping $161.2 million. Consistently, more money is spent on evacuations and recovery than on preventative measures or emergency planning. But while that money continues to flow, it doesn't seem to properly serve anyone involved. In a statement, Indigenous Services Canada pointed to further increases in funding in the 2019 budget that are focused on prevention and emergency planning. But 
no one was made available to speak about those programs. Members of Little Grand Rapids First Nation and Pungassi First Nation began their return home on October 4th, 81 days after leaving. At long last, they're going home. But everyone knows in the back of their mind that this will probably happen again. And again. And not just to them, but to people across the country. Nearly one-third of all wildfire evacuees in Canada are Indigenous. And you might be tempted to ask, at what point are these communities simply no longer viable places to live? But I'll tell you this, I spoke to many people who live in these remote First Nations, all of them drastically impacted, many of them traumatized and in mourning. And even still, not one of them considered abandoning their ancestral land, their home, as a viable option. In fact, it was unthinkable. That is your Canada Land, originally broadcast this past October. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Rachel Karens, theater artist, filmmaker, past portrayer of Juliet, Ophelia, and Viola, and now host and creator of the podcast Borsch. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hey, thanks for having me. The convoy is coming back to Ottawa, maybe, sort of. What have we learned, and is it still a convoy without a parade of trucks, or how many trucks must be strung together in a row for it to be a convoy and not just a... I know, a traffic jam. Uh, I'm Jonathan Goldsby, filling in for Jesse Brown, who, not unlike Fievel the Mouse, has gone west this week. This is Shortcuts, where we talk about the news. As you likely know, Rachel, we duly note things on Shortcuts. What would you like to note, Dooley? This week, I would really like to duly note a tweet from Butilla Carpochea, the NDP MPP, just bringing our attention to residents of a Parkdale apartment building who are being evicted for running their AC units during hot weather. And basically, apparently, we have rental policy in place that mandates a minimum temperature that apartments can get to, but there is no maximum temperature that apartments can get to. And what she's drawing our attention to is that landlords are using a loophole in the Residential Tenancy Act. If you can evict somebody, there's no rent control in terms of what the next rent you establish is. 
obviously a dirty tactic by greedy landlords to displace vulnerable communities. And we need to stop that from happening. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a loophole since it was, by, <laughs> I think it was by design. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. Le- like learning with some of some John Oliver the other week that's, oh yeah, it's not, we don't, what we have is not really rent control. It's closer to rent stabilization. Oh man. Yeah. Limiting the increases in rent from one year of a tenancy to the next. Like, no, real rent control would apply to the unit and would prevent basically unrestricted increases in price from one tenant to the next, Mm -hmm. which definitely seems to be the single biggest incentive for Mm -hmm. dubious evictions. Duly noted. Preparations underway for the first almost normal Canada Day celebrations in three years. But with hundreds of thousands expected to descend on the downtown core, there's also some anxiety about so-called freedom protesters among them. Police say they're ready. We expect there to be demonstrations. This is a right of all Canadians and it will be protected. We will not, however, accept unlawful behaviour. The city says it'll have backup from the Mounties and Ontario Provincial Police. So... How do you cover something that could turn out to be nothing or could turn out to be everything or could potentially be anything in between those? And which is also something that is also very different things to different people. Um, the media was faced with those conundrums in the run up to the convoy that arrived and then stuck around in Ottawa last winter. And it's faced with them again now that the convoy or at least a convoy or maybe just a new incarnation of the same loose movement is expected to materialize in Ottawa in some form over the Canada Day weekend. So we're just going to look at how it's being covered now and how that sort of changed and what we've learned. Whenever I want to wrap my head around something that became the biggest story in the country and how it was covered by the mainstream media, I try to go back to the beginning and I'd like to see how things were like initially reported before there became too much coverage to keep track of it all. So it's interesting but not super surprising that there was actually very little advanced coverage of the convoy in Canadian newspapers in January before it actually set off eastward from BC. There are a few legs, but the big one was BC. So on Thursday, the January 20th, three days before it headed east, there were a couple paragraphs at the very end of a Vancouver Sun story that mostly concerned the potential supply chain impacts of vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers. So the convoy just like an afterthought in that. And then the next day, there was a one-paragraph story, truckers depart BC Sunday headed for Ottawa protest, slaughtered at the top of the National Post on page A6. I guess, Rachel, if you can think back, what was the first time you recall reading or hearing anything about the convoy? And what would you recall of your impression from that? (sighs) Let's think. You know, I can't remember a precise pinpoint moment as to how I heard about it, but it was definitely before they got there. And my reaction was just uh, disgust. There are different things to potentially be disgusted by, but do you recall what prompted that? Yeah, I guess it was just this, um, from how I understand it, in terms of the, the trucker movement, that the majority of truckers had been vaccinated, as have the majority mm-hmm. of Canadians. So again, it was the small fringe minority co-opting mm-hmm. the position of opposition and then going to our capital to occupy on really like false pretenses as far as I'm concerned. Also just like having been submerged in reproductive rights mobilization in history. There's obviously the abortion caravan, which did the from the Mm, West Coast mm. to Ottawa. And again, I was like, see, they always co-opt our shit and turn it for their evil uses (laughs) with my my personal opinion on that. And the abortion caravan took that 
actual root from sometime in the 1930s, a labor movement. Oh, interesting. I think it was called the Aunt Ottawa Trek or something like that. Mm. So in the midst of the Depression, all of these men started to go over, you know, made their way across the country. I think they only made it as far as Regina and then the police shut them down. Oh, wow. But again, it's like, you know, a labor rights movement. And so to have this here we are today using this type of protest for the forces of populism just felt really ugh, the world. I mean, you raised a super interesting point in that they parallel and obviously it's, you know, no comparison. I think it's perfect. But like just the idea that, yeah, I once say like this is also a question where society in general and the media in particular has sort of had to wrestle with the question of like, what is the proper amount of coverage and proper way to cover? Basically a fringe group, not especially representative, at least not in like if we're talking especially not if we're talking about the vaccination of truckers, not especially representative, but which is absolutely loud, passionate, and once again crucially organized, or at least organized better than anyone had expected, reasonably so. Yeah, seeing how what is the correct amount of space to give to that. And so you can see on a lot of the early coverage, people trying to sort of wrap their heads around what is this and how do we characterize it? Because the first stuff, you know, it was very much about like this was the literal like just, uh, you know, anti-vaccine truckers. And then pretty quickly, you know, it became apparent that there was a lot of things going on. I mean, one of the first things I found was in the Brandon Sun in Manitoba where the editor, Matt Gerzen, like three days before it got to Ottawa, he was really trying to grapple with this and saying like, over the last number of days, I've taken several phone calls from people who are calling upon the Sun newsroom to, and I quote, report the truth about the truckers convoy that is currently winding its way to Ottawa. Um, Please do not twist the truth as we know the news media does, read one particularly insulting message to the Sun. Make sure your readers understand that this convoy is for all Canadians, that Canadians will get their freedoms back. One of them tried to tell me how Microsoft owner Bill Gates had made some kind of deal with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he went on to observe that, you know, there were more than enough signs that at least some of the groups supporting and joining the convoy have ties to white supremacist groups, but also that he wasn't convinced that the majority of people who've decided to support the truckers also support white nationalists, Western separatists, and bigots. And then he expressed sympathy for their concerns, but also added the caveat that he couldn't support an effort that, at its core, was built upon lies and misinformation. We're going to be looking at some recent pieces about the convoy. Uh, One, an investigative thing by Justin Ling and Vice. Uh, Another, a news report in the Thai. And the last, it's a pair of book excerpts, or well, two excerpts from one book that ran as a two-part series in the National Post. So maybe this is a big question, but like I guess we were speaking earlier about, you know, the issues of both sides in things. I mean, this arguably isn't a human rights issue, although I imagine there are some people who, whatever reason, see it as such. Do you think it's possible to capture ambivalence without creating a both sides situation? It's not like a really big question. My knee jerk is no, because, you know, out of these kind of these three articles that we're looking at, I think the one that most represents ambivalence is obviously the National Post one. He says there's this quote in that article where he goes, but is there a difference between Nazi sympathizers and people who are too dumb to come up with a more sophisticated argument than calling political opponents Nazis? I don't know. Is there? (laughs) Like, he presents a very ambivalent look at the liberals, look at the lefties getting all hysterical about this. And yet... From my perspective, this is a complete propaganda piece that does not interrogate the nefarious forces, you know, currents that are running throughout it. So I don't know. 
uh, I don't, mm-hmm. I think to answer your question, no, from my perspective. <laughs> Five months later, after all this initially happened, and we were looking at how is it being covered now, both retrospectively and as what may be coming up, are sort of looking at how what I guess started off as people trying to wrap their heads around it have sort of formed into these fairly concrete views that are both the absolute opposites and yet not even necessarily mutually exclusive. So the National Post article you're describing is by Andrew Lawton. He's with True North Center, which is I, – I will be generous because I don't want to go into a big digression and just call them a right-wing organization. And it was an excerpt from a book he's written about the convoy. So Lawton's book, uh, which came out, I believe, just the other week, it's a you know it's a 190-page soft cover called The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World, which I don't think is supposed to be a funny title, but it, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate I, I find it funny. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's published by Sutherland House, which is this sort of boutique publishing thing run by Ken White, who was famously and controversially the editor of different times of the National Post, Saturday Night Magazine, and McLean's. And I'm also going to try to avoid a whole digression there. But it was presented as two parts in the Post. And the, the first one was that one you're describing, the headline in the paper as the lost nuances of the Freedom Convoy. And it's going through and basically talking about what he saw on the ground and what people were telling him on the ground, saying it's not what people thought it was. And yeah, basically anything that reflected badly on it, well, that wasn't actually representative of it, which is quite an interesting rhetorical trick on the one hand. On the other hand, probably is how he and a lot of other people honestly see it. And then there's a question of, well, how many like Nazi flags can something have? Even if these are Nazi flags that maybe are being used as some ham-fisted thing to try to protest the Canadian government, like saying Nazis are bad and the Canadian government is Nazis. Like even if it's just that, like how many does a movement have to have before that doesn't become reflective of a movement? Like it tends to take up a lot of space in a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, he, you know, he points out yeah, misleading or initial reporting or things like, you know, he describes like the Terry Fox statue that was supposedly defaced. And he says, well, no, it wasn't defaced. It was a hat was put on it and I guess holding up a sign and like a flag draped around it. And I mean, I I agree. I mean, I think defaced technically is an accurate word, but I mean, that does suggest something semi-permanent. So that was misleading. And so he offers a bunch of examples like that. And then he sort of paints a picture of the convoy as like this very joyous encampment occupation thing, which but the, and the thing is for, for a lot of people, I'm sure it was, but as I said, like he glosses over all of the stuff that doesn't really fit in with that. The, the absurdity that really came across in the, the subsequent excerpt they ran, he sort of talks about how the convoy lost control of the message, not just because of the media, but because of basically dueling people link claims to the leadership of it and holding their own press conferences. And it's really interesting how after writing an article about why aren't people reporting this as it is, he then basically goes on and on about how they couldn't even clearly present their own message because they were basically all fighting each other. And this is one of the leaders said, inevitably, every day about 8, 8.30 a.m., we would find out, oh, there's a press conference, said Dictor. Great. We didn't authorize a press conference. Who authorized the press conference? So we spent an hour trying to figure out who authorized the press conference, where it's coming from. And it just kind of goes on and on trying to parse all of these different things. It is such a clear example of how even the organizers couldn't 
wrap their heads around what this is. And so had the idea that they would get angry at people for representing it as one thing or another. Um, a Vice article by Justin Ling, and the headline is, Conservative MPs met with anti-vaccine leaders inside Parliament as convoy plans to return to Ottawa. Uh, also from last week. I mean, that's interesting. What I also found really interesting is how a lot of this article really hangs on this intelligence assessment that he obtained and sort of just reports from that. I mean, there's a lot of really good and interesting stuff in this article, which serves off really good reminder of like, oh, yeah, the, the, the people leading this, especially now that, you know, they're by and large aren't vaccine or mask mandates in Canada. Like, what are they organized around? <laughs> It'd be too condescending to say, like, they don't live in reality. So I'll say people whose conception of reality is distinct and resolutely counterfactual. Rachel, do you think the media has learned anything from the last time? And do you think the coverage this time seems any different or more informed? Uh, I find that to be a, a tricky question, personally. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there is a part of me that wants to, similar to the anti-choice stuff, be like, stop reporting on it. But at the same time, we do need to be made aware of it. And also the divides that we're seeing in society need to be discussed. So if anything, like, <laughs> I know we're talking about the Vice article, but the one that actually I felt you know, is something that a perspective that I hadn't seen offered yet on this, on, on the convoy itself was the Thai piece, because I think it had a much more humanistic and empathetic way to frame the movement. Of course, you know, hailing from the secular tree hugging West Coast, that's like everyone calm down and remember that we're all people. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was, yeah, that's a good story that definitely takes a different sort of angle on it. So this piece is by Christopher Gooley in the Thai. That was just this week. It's titled, The Convoys Heading Back to Ottawa, Community Solidarity is Ready. The subhead is, A national movement pushes back against the politics of hate and reaches out to protesters. Yeah, yeah. So that one actually struck me the most. I mean, out of these three pieces that we're talking, I kind of like, you know, it's like... The Thai is the good, Vice is the bad, and National Post is the ugly, you know? <laughs> like, the Vice piece is being like, here are all the bad things about this. <laughs> yeah, the Thai from the article by Christopher Gooley, looking at the national movement pushing back against radicalization, against... That's the important angle that we... Are missing, or... You know, it's, it's yeah, a, exactly. I think it's a more productive way to actually mm -hmm. engage with this. Because, you know, us being like, y'all go away like that's just going to incite war i say that like metaphorically but you know there is there is a risk of violence here and it's not a productive way to engage with it so i was i was grateful for their take on it and it reminds me of a <laughs> infographic that aoc recently published on her Instagram. <laughs> but she said, you know, many of our biggest problems are results of massively scaled up isolation from others. That means many of our solutions can be found in creating community. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thank you, Rachel, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I really, really appreciate this. This was fun. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email Jesse about it, Jesse being the usual host, at uh, jesse at CanadaLand.com. He reads everything you send. <laughs> People can find me on Twitter, G-O-L-D-S-B-I-E, or email as well, I guess, Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. I'm not, not as good at getting back to emails as I would like. But like Jesse, I promise to at least read everything. Where can people find you, Rachel? 
Yeah, so you can find a borscht, uh, my current podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts, and uh, on Instagram at a borscht pod. This episode is produced by Viva Lazard. Thank you so much, Aviva, as always, with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outsorn. Theme music is by So Called, and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Thank you.